Hello, and welcome back to We Are the Weirdos, Mister, the podcast for all things cult, camp, queer, and creepy. I am your host, Hillary Michelle Post, and today we will be talking about the perks of being a wallflower. Uh, Perks is a young adult novel from 1999, written by Stephen Chbotsky, Chbotsky? We'll say say Chbotsky, (laughs) who later adapted the book for the screen in 2012. Um, Chbotsky wrote the screenplay and directed the adaptation, so they are very similar. Um, I will mostly be talking about the film, just for brevity's sake, um, but I will reference the book a lot as well, just to kind of supplement the overall story. Um, So I should start with just a general spoiler warning for the entire book and movie. Um, And if you are highly sensitive to certain topics, I'd recommend pausing this and just looking up the trigger warnings for perks as well, since it deals with a lot of tough subjects. Uh, Unlike the previous movies I've talked about on here, Perks is not a genre film. It is a coming-of-age dramedy in the vein of like John Hughes or Cameron Crowe. But I'm a huge fan of this story because it centers around a group of misfits who remind me of myself at that age in a way that uh, almost no other movie ever has. So let's first let's just go through the plot. The story takes place in the early 90s in Pennsylvania. One of the things I really appreciate about the film is that it doesn't fall into the trap of a lot of other period-specific films, where it kind of beats you over the head with, hey, look, it's the 90s. (laughs) Sometimes that nostalgia is relevant to the story, like in Days and Confused or Stranger Things, something like that, but it's not here. So the only way you know it's in the 90s is like through the lack of technology. Everyone uses cassette tapes, no one has cell phones, etc. So our main character is a 15-year-old named Charlie. The story is told through letters that Charlie writes to an unknown person. From the opening lines, we can kind of infer that these letters act more as journal entries as opposed to actual correspondence, Um, though I think in in the book they might mention actually mailing them to someone. But regardless, it's left intentionally very vague. Charlie suffers from emotional problems, stemming from multiple traumas namely the death of his Aunt Helen when he was a child, and the recent suicide of his best friend Michael. His emotional stability is tenuous, and he's very nervous about starting high school, because he feels very lonely and almost invisible. Charlie, as a narrator, is a little tough, I have to admit. The first time I tried to read the book, I had to tap out like halfway through because Charlie's POV comes across as sort of infantile, I guess, and it can be very grating. Um, and the information about all of his traumas are slowly revealed throughout the story, so you don't have the whole picture going in. Once you know more about him, the way he communicates and sees the world makes more sense. But until you do, it's kind of difficult to understand why this sad yet otherwise neurotypical teenager is so childlike and naive and even rude sometimes. Uh, Fortunately for the film, Logan Lerman's performance as Charlie is so wonderful you kind of get Charlie right away. We, we still don't know everything about him yet, but Logan is so nuanced and sweet that he's a thousand times more likable on film. 
So Charlie has two older siblings. In the book, they don't have names. Um, but in the movie, his sister is named Candace and his brother is named Chris. Chris just graduated and has a football scholarship to Penn State, and Candace is a senior in high school. Charlie hopes that Candace will let him hang out with her at school, since he has basically no one, but she doesn't, which, you know, fuck you, Candace. Your sad little brother needs your help, but whatever. (laughs) Candace has a boyfriend referred to by everyone as Ponytail Derek, and Ponytail Derek is exactly as much of a douchebag as one would imagine someone named Ponytail Derek would be. (laughs) We meet Mr. Anderson, Charlie's English teacher, played by Paul Rudd, and Paul is such an affable guy. Mr. Anderson comes off as slightly goofy but super sweet, and while I love the casting, I do always find it funny how downplayed his character is in the film because, let's be real, if you had a teacher who looked like Paul Rudd in high school, holy shit, nothing would ever get accomplished. Girls would be knocking each other's teeth out just to get his attention. (laughs) Charlie is too shy and self-conscious to raise his hand in class, but Mr. Anderson recognizes how smart he is and they become friends. And Mr. Anderson gives Charlie some extra books to read and write essays on for extra credit, just kind of like as extra exercises for fun. Sort of as like a hobby, because Charlie seems to really love literature and writing, and his talent as a writer is a through line throughout the plot. Charlie then meets Patrick, played by Ezra Miller, who is one of my favorite human beings on the entire planet, by the way. Ezra Miller is a queer-identifying actor, musician, and model, and I adore him. He is genderqueer, but I made sure to look up his pronouns, and he's said that he, him, his pronouns are fine. Which reminds me, if I ever misgender anyone on this show, please correct me. Leave a comment, tweet me, whatever. I would never intentionally misgender someone, so please let me know if I do. Uh, But I feel like, of all the roles Ezra has played, the character of Patrick is the most like Ezra himself. And not just because they're both queer, but because they have very similar, funny, warm, confident energies. I love Ezra so much, and by extension, Patrick would probably land on a top 10 list of favorite fictional characters of all time for me, to be honest. So Patrick is the only senior in Charlie's freshman shop class. He has a contemptuous relationship with their shop teacher, Mr. Callahan, who is played by, weirdly enough, Tom Savini. Tom usually appears in genre films and is probably best known for his legendary special effects work. He worked on Dawn of the Dead, Friday the 13th, Maniac, um, all practical prosthetics and effects. He's a horror icon. And I swear to God, I always forget he's in this movie until he comes on screen. And I'm like, holy shit, it's Tom Savini. (laughs) Tom is from Pittsburgh, like writer-director Stephen Chbotsky. So perhaps they're friends in real life? I'm not sure. Um, But it's always a pleasure to see Tom Savini. Uh, Mr. Callahan refers to Patrick as Patty Cakes, to which Patrick replies, My name is Patrick. You'll call me Patrick or you call me nothing. And Mr. Callahan replies, Okay, nothing. And then throughout the rest of the movie, assholes keep calling Patrick nothing. Charlie can tell Patrick is nice and funny, so while all alone at a football game, Charlie says hi, and Patrick immediately recognizes him from class and invites him to sit next to him. One of my favorite exchanges in the film, Patrick asks Charlie how his clock for shop class is coming along. Charlie says, my dad's building mine, 
Patrick says, yeah, mine looks like a boat. <laughs> uh, we then meet Sam. Sam is Patrick's close friend and stepsister, played by Emma Watson. And Charlie pretty much falls in love with her the moment he lays eyes on her, which, I mean, duh, it's Emma Watson. She's breathtaking. This is really stupid, but when I first saw this movie, it was around the time I started really, really, really wanting to chop all of my hair off. And Emma Watson's pixie cut in this movie was one of the things that gave me the nerve to do it. Uh, anyway, we meet Sam, and she's a lot like Patrick. Funny, confident, like lovingly sardonic, and she's immediately really nice to Charlie as well. When Charlie tells them his full name, Patrick exclaims, No shit! Your sister's dating Ponytail Derek, isn't she? <laughs> so, clearly, Derek's doucheness precedes him. Sam and Patrick invite Charlie to join them after the game at King's, which is a real restaurant in Pittsburgh. But just for reference, it kind of gives off a Denny's sort of vibe, which is extra endearing for me because my friends and I used to go to Denny's a lot late at night when we were younger. And there, the three of them get to know each other a little more, and they quickly bond over music. Ponytail Derek is constantly making Candace these mixtapes, and she usually just immediately gives them to Charlie. So, Charlie has recently discovered a lot of subversive music, like the Cocktoo Twins and the Smiths. Music is an important motif in the movie, and is very formative for the characters. Patrick says, you know, I used to be popular until Sam got me some good music. <laughs> Sam asks Charlie what he wants to do when he gets out of Pittsburgh. And he says he wants to be a writer. Sam says, write about us. And Patrick says, yeah, call it Slut and the Falcon. Make us solve crimes. <laughs> when Charlie gets home later that night. He witnesses Candace and Ponytail Derek arguing. And Derek slaps Candace across the face. Candace makes Charlie promise not to tell their parents. Says that she'll handle it. Handle it. So he doesn't tell, though he's not happy about it. And in the book, I think, he tells Mr. Anderson who then tells their parents. And there's this whole subplot of Candace being angry with Charlie for a long time. Um, but we'll get more into Candace later. Next we see Charlie quietly standing alone against the wall at the homecoming dance. When uh, Come On Eileen by Dexie's Midnight Runners comes on, Sam and Patrick exclaim that the DJ is finally playing good music and run out onto the dance floor to do their living room routine, which I think almost all siblings had something like that growing up. And Charlie watches them dancing and having fun, and he nervously goes out to join them. And after the dance, Sam and Patrick bring Charlie along to a house party. Uh, this isn't in the movie, but in the book, the party makes Charlie remember a time once during a party his older brother threw that he accidentally witnessed a girl being date raped, but he didn't realize what he was seeing at the time, but realizes now. And he later slashes the rapist's tires, <laughs> which is kind of too little too late, but you know, it's still sweet of him to do. Anyway, at the party, we meet some of Sam and Patrick's friends, who Charlie befriends as well. We meet Bob, the local drug dealer with a heart of gold and the intellectual fortitude of a golden retriever. <laughs> we meet Alice, a kleptomaniac goth girl, and Mary Elizabeth, a combative Buddhist intellectual, played by Mae Whitman. Mary Elizabeth is kind of the worst. 
which is very embarrassing because she reminds me a lot of me at that age. And she's just like really smart and insecure and frustrated with her surroundings. And it manifests itself as being very aggressive and condescending sometimes. And I know I was insufferable at that age for like the exact same reasons. Charlie unknowingly eats a pot brownie and gets super high and amuses the other partygoers with his frank observations and blunt honesty. This isn't touched on in the movie as much as it is in the book, but that type of bluntness is a pretty much constant thing for Charlie. Not just when he's high. <laughs> for instance, in the book, he has a wet dream about Sam and just straight up tells her about it. <laughs> he frequently says some kind of inappropriate stuff just out of a compulsion to be honest without realizing what he's doing is not okay. Uh, fortunately, Sam has a sense of humor about it and Patrick explains to Charlie the importance of censoring yourself from time to time, which is very admirable of them to do for him. I wish I was more like that. Like, I have a very low tolerance for rudeness and cringiness. I feel like if I spent any time at all with early Charlie in real life, I'd probably burst into flames just <laughs> from extreme moths. Like, just, oh, the secondhand embarrassment. So, it's unsurpri unsurprising that Charlie's behavior made it difficult for me to even get through the book on my first try. Anyway, back at the party, he gets the munchies and it makes him crave a, a milkshake. So Sam makes him one. And this is where Sam finds out that Charlie just lost his best friend. That his friend killed himself. Because he sort of just blurts it out while he's high. Um... Charlie then walks in on Patrick and Brad, the popular football quarterback, and they're making out. And Patrick explains that he and Brad have been together a long time, but Brad is still very much in the closet and tells Charlie he has to keep it a secret. Later, Sam tells Patrick about Charlie's friend's suicide. And it's never said explicitly but in this moment we kind of get the feeling that this information explains a lot to Patrick and Sam like they already liked Charlie but his loneliness and awkwardness just immediately makes more sense and they're very sympathetic and Patrick proposes a toast to Charlie praising him for his sincerity and understanding and christens him a wallflower as someone who is quiet and sometimes goes unnoticed but who truly sees and values other people. Sam tells Charlie, welcome to the island of misfit toys, a sort of induction into their friend group of weirdos. On the ride home after the party, a song comes on the radio that Sam declares is the perfect tunnel song. And as they drive through the Fort Pitt tunnel, Sam gets into the bed of Patrick's truck and stands up with her arms out like she's flying. And Charlie watches her lovingly and says to Patrick, I feel infinite. In the book, the song is Landslide by Fleetwood Mac. But in the movie... <laughs> In the movie, the song is Heroes by David Bowie. And Heroes is my favorite song of all time. And anytime I hear it, I immediately get all up in my feelings. <laughs> so I agree with Sam. That is basically the perfect song. But here's the thing. They don't recognize the song. It's this whole plot point that runs through the whole film. What was the tunnel song? And this is my biggest gripe with the movie. Like, you mean to tell me 
a group of alternative queer kids obsessed with music, frequent shoppers at a record store, who participate in Rocky Horror Picture Show, don't recognize a David Bowie song? Like, not only would these kids absolutely know who Bowie is, Heroes is one of his most beloved songs. Like, it was first recorded in, like, 73, I think. So it would have definitely been around long enough for these kids to have heard it. And apparently I'm not the only one who has, was super annoyed by this. Because Stephen Tbotsky actually addressed it in an interview with Vanity Fair. And he said it was based on his own experience as a kid. That he didn't discover Bowie's 70s era music until later in life but I still call bullshit. (laughs) So the more we learn about Charlie's friends, we see a repeating pattern among them regarding toxic relationships and abuse. When Sam was a freshman, senior boys would get her super drunk and take advantage of her. And during the time span of the book and movie, she's dating a 20-something-year-old college guy who is a total asshat. And we've established that Patrick is in a secret relationship with Brad. But when they first started fooling around, Brad would always be completely smashed when they'd hook up and claim he didn't even remember it the next day. And Brad eventually got sober and continued seeing Patrick, albeit still in secret, And the first time they had sex, Brad even told Patrick he loved him. And as sympathetic as I am for Brad, especially keeping in mind that this takes place in the early 90s, when it was even harder to come out of the closet, it's still a super shitty situation for Patrick, and it isn't fair to him. Then, of course, there's Candace and Ponytail Douche Canoe Derek, And throughout the book and film, Charlie thinks a lot about his late Aunt Helen and the fact that she was abused as a child and uh, and abused in several relationships throughout her life. So with all these loved ones in mind, Charlie asks Mr. Anderson why so many people he loves are in miserable relationships. And Mr. Anderson replies, we accept the love we think we deserve. And when I first discovered Perks, I was in a really, really toxic relationship and in severe denial about it. And that line really punched me in the gut. It woke me up. Because you can't save yourself from shitty circumstances and relationships until you recognize what brought you there. And it's more often than not because you did not love yourself enough. And it wasn't until I finally believed I deserved better that I managed to get out of my awful, abusive living situation. So I quote that line often because it really resonates, I think. So now we're getting near the holidays. And in the book... Christmas is a really hard time of year for Charlie. His birthday is Christmas Eve, and that is also the night his Aunt Helen died in a car accident when he was seven. The last thing she said to Charlie before she left is that she was going out to get him his birthday present. So Charlie carries a lot of ill-placed guilt over Helen's death. And on top of that, Christmas means he has to go visit family in Ohio, and it's always awful. His grandfather is a racist piece of shit, and it's just an entirely unpleasant ordeal. Charlie turns 16, which is important to note, because yes, Charlie is a freshman, but he is an older freshman, because he has such a late birthday in the year and because he missed some school being treated for his depression. So it's important to remember that as Charlie builds such close, intimate relationships with seniors. Uh, 
he's never more than a year and a half to two years younger than his friends. Again, none of this is brought up in the movie, except for Helen's death, of course. Uh, In the movie, we see Charlie ask his father, (laughs) who is played by Dylan McDermott, for some money to buy gifts for his friends. Charlie says, Dad, can I have $30? His dad responds, $20? What do you need $10 for? (laughs) That line cracks my ass up every time. Uh, If I remember correctly, I think it was ad-libbed by Dylan because it was something his father used to say. But he ends up giving Charlie $40 and he, as in Charlie, and his friends start leaving secret Santa gifts in each other's lockers. Then they get together for a little party at Sam and Patrick's house. It's just Sam, Patrick, Charlie, Mary Elizabeth, Alice, and Bob. And they reveal their secret Santas. And Patrick says, So far, I have received a harmonica, a magnetic poetry set, a book about Harvey Milk, and a mixtape with Asleep by the Smiths on it twice. (laughs) These gifts are so gay, I think I must have given them to myself. (laughs) But of course, the gifts are from Charlie. And in addition to that, he also got the rest of his friends' gifts as well, even though he wasn't supposed to. And Mary Elizabeth scolds him for not following the secret Santa rules, and Patrick says, Mary Elizabeth, why are you trying to eat Christmas? <laughs> and Charlie gives um, Mary Elizabeth some money to print her Rocky Horror fanzine in color, gives Bob a bottle of bubbles, which... Bob's stoner ass loves. I think he gives Alice a journal and he gives Sam a Beatles 45 that his Aunt Helen had given to him when he was little. And it's another great example of how Charlie truly sees people. He has a huge heart and though he's pretty quiet, he is like a sponge, constantly observing everything around him especially when it comes to people he cares about. In the book, Charlie recites a poem as at the party as part of his present to Patrick. The poem was, I think, was given to him by Michael before Michael killed himself. And the poem itself has a very strange backstory in real life. Like It was first published in Time Magazine in 73 as part of an article about teen suicide. And it was credited to an anonymous teenager who supposedly had eventually killed himself. And that was kind of like the urban legend that surrounded the poem for a long time. And that's what Charlie thinks is the case in the book, too. Um, In reality, it was written by a child psychologist named Dr. Earl Ream, I think. Uh, the poem is known by several different titles and has been published like severely edited multiple times but if you google Earl Ream it you'll be able to find it if you want to read the poem but long story short it's about suicide and Charlie's relationship with the poem and why he would want his friends to hear it is up to interpretation like does he know what it's about and the significance of his dead friend giving it to him and just wants to share it? Or does he know what it means and relates to it and is sharing it with his friends as a cry for help? Does he only relate to it subconsciously and doesn't realize why and doesn't realize the implications of sharing it? Like, I've never settled on which I think is true. And they filmed the scene, but ultimately cut it from the film. But if you watch the theatrical cut, when everyone is reacting to their gifts from Charlie, you can actually see Patrick reading a piece of paper and looking a bit disturbed by it. Patrick was also Charlie's secret Santa, and he gives him a suit. Because, quote, all the great writers used to wear suits. 
the scene always makes me laugh because everyone acts like the suit magically turned Charlie hot or something. <laughs> but, um, hi, yeah, Logan Lerman is beautiful and that is very apparent with or without a suit. Like, don't get me wrong. I've definitely seen the power of a good suit, but this suit isn't even good. Like, it's just whatever, you know. Anyway, later, Sam takes Charlie to her bedroom to give him a gift in private. She gives him a typewriter. And the topic of relationships comes up. And Sam asks Charlie sort of the same thing he had asked Mr. Anderson. She says, Why do I and everyone I love pick people who treat us like we're nothing? And Charlie tells her, we accept the love we think we deserve. She asks him about his first kiss, and he says he hasn't had one yet. Then Sam reveals that her first kiss was when she was 11, and it was from her father's 30-something-year-old friend. So, suddenly, as an audience, a lot of stuff about Sam starts to make sense. Like... The drinking and doing drugs, and like having sex with seniors, dating a college guy, like it's all a product of being a su- survivor of childhood sexual assault. And we'll get more into that later. But Sam tells Charlie that she wants his first kiss to be from someone who loves him. So she kisses him. And It's a tricky thing because the intent and meaning behind the kiss is very sweet and comes from a place of love, but it isn't necessarily doing Charlie any favors because Sam may love him, but he is in love with her and she's still dating Craig at this point, so it must have been very confusing for Charlie, I think. Then there's a great scene transition at this point where we see Charlie and his family at church for Christmas Mass, and we see him take communion. And as he puts the wafer in his mouth, it's intercut with a shot of Charlie putting LSD on his tongue at a New Year's Eve party with his friends. And unsurprisingly, he doesn't have the best trip. (laughs) At one point, he's out in the driveway shoveling snow. I don't remember whose house this party was at, but whoever it was has the biggest goddamn garage I have ever seen. This motherfucker has six doors on this one garage, which is totally not important, but it's it's all I can focus on during that scene. Anyhow, Charlie ends up thinking a lot about his aunt's death, and he winds up passed out in the snow. And the next day, he's in the hospital. And his parents and a police officer are asking him if he took drugs, and he denies it. Says he was feeling feverish and seeing things and just passed out in a snowbank. And his mother says, you're seeing things again, Charlie? Which kind of clues us in that Charlie's emotional problems at some point must have been accompanied by some mild psychosis. And the more we learn about Charlie, we get the sense that there's much deeper stuff going on here than just depression. Uh, so, I mentioned earlier that the kids participate in Rocky Horror at midnight showings. And not just like they attend, they star in the show. <laughs> Patrick is Frank, Sam is Janet. Mary Elizabeth is Columbia, Alice is Magenta, which I've got to admit is super hard for me to buy. Like, I could be wrong, but there's no fucking way that a bunch of 17-year-olds are allowed to star in this. Like, I know it's a midnight movie, but it's still a R-rated movie. When I first went to Rocky Horror, I was 16, maybe? And I had to go with my older sister, 
and lie about my age to even get in. But whatever, let's just use our suspension of disbelief and say this would ever really happen. Sam's boyfriend Craig usually plays Rocky, but he flakes out on them one night. So Charlie steps in and plays Rocky for them. Which of course means he gets to prance around in little tiny gold shorts and perform touch a touch a touch me with Sam and gets to feel her up. So, you know, bonus. And Mary Elizabeth has the hots for Charlie now, having seen him dance around in his skivvies. Which again, no amount of clothing or lack thereof is necessary to see that Logan Lorman is cute as fuck, but whatever. And so Mary Elizabeth asks Charlie to Sadie Hawkins, and he agrees. And to Mary Elizabeth, this apparently means their boyfriend and girlfriend now, which kind of blindsides Charlie. And as we discussed earlier, Mary Elizabeth is pretty insufferable. And Charlie is fucking miserable. And yes, of course, he's just being nice, and he doesn't want to hurt Mary Elizabeth's feelings, but like I said in the Midsummer episode a couple weeks ago, it is a million times more cruel to stay with someone you do not care about than it is to just break up with them. So I always get kind of pissed at Charlie during these scenes for just not opening his damn mouth and saying something. So he's miserable, and later when he's hanging out with his friends playing Truth or Dare, he fantasizes about picking Truth and Patrick asking, how's the relationship going? And Charlie imagines answering, it's so bad that I keep fantasizing that one of us is dying of cancer so that I don't have to break up with her. (laughs) To avoid potentially saying that out loud, he picks dare instead. And Patrick says, I dare you to kiss the prettiest girl in the room. And without thinking about it, Charlie, just out of reflex, kisses Sam. Mary Elizabeth storms off, and the girls follow her. And Charlie's apologizing profusely. And Sam just says, what the hell is wrong with you? And Patrick explains to Charlie that this isn't the first time shit like this has happened between Mary Elizabeth and Sam, like when it comes to boys. And he doesn't elaborate because he doesn't have to. I mean, come on. Imagine being friends with Emma Watson. Are you kidding? Like, I was everyone's designated ugly fat friend growing up, so I know how it is. It fucking sucks sometimes. And Mary Elizabeth isn't even ugly or fat. She's just not Emma Watson. You know what I mean? So her feelings are really hurt, obviously. Um, And so Charlie is ostracized from the group. And he, he doesn't take it very well. His depression really comes back like full force when he's not with his friends. Around this time in the book, and there were some scenes that were filmed as well, but were ultimately cut. Uh, In the book, Candace finds out she is pregnant, and she confides in Charlie, and he goes with her when she goes to get an abortion. And this plot point doesn't really serve a purpose beyond it kind of bonding Charlie and Candace together in this secret and to further illustrate that everyone in this damn book is going through a lot of really heavy shit. But on the bright side, at least Candace finally breaks up with douchebag Derek. So that's a plus. So Charlie's friends are still not speaking to him, but Charlie finds out that Brad's father caught Brad and Patrick together. And Brad's dad beat Brad half to death. So Brad's been ignoring Patrick ever since. Then one day, one of Brad's piece of shit friends trips Patrick in the cafeteria. 
and they start to argue and Brad calls Patrick a faggot. So Patrick punches Brad, but then all of Brad's goon football player friends jump Patrick and start beating the shit out of him. So Charlie jumps in to save Patrick and he kind of like blacks out in rage and kicks everyone's ass and tells the other boys, touch my friends again and I'll blind you. It's so, it's such a chilling line. It's somehow so much more intimidating than saying, I'll beat your ass or I'll kill you. Because it's so specific. (laughs) And it's scary to see that Charlie has so much rage, like right below the surface. It reinforces the idea that Charlie's issues are deeper than we even know yet. And after saving Patrick... Charlie's friends forgive him, and they all start hanging out together again. But Patrick is really depressed about Brad, so he goes on a lot of long drives at night, usually bringing Charlie along with him. And one night, Patrick kisses Charlie, and Patrick immediately breaks down and apologizes, but Charlie doesn't even bat an eye. Like he, He knows he just did it because he's sad. It's a very sweet scene, actually. Charlie is such a good friend and such an understanding person, and he cares about Patrick a lot. And you you hardly ever see close friendships between straight male characters and gay male characters on screen. And it's significant, I think. And Charlie is conflicted because at this point we're getting into the spring. And, you know, one part of him is really happy to see his friends attend prom and graduate high school and get accepted into college. Like, he's happy for them. But he also is going to miss them a lot and is sad to be left behind. And Sam and Craig finally break up because Sam finds out that Craig has been cheating on her pretty much their entire relationship. Which is not even remotely surprising. (laughs) You take one look at Craig, and you could tell he was a fucking pig. You know, just tell by looking at him. But Sam gets accepted to a summer program at Penn State, so she will be leaving earlier than everyone else. And the night before she leaves, Charlie comes over to help her pack. And they wind up talking about their relationship. And Sam scolds Charlie for never asking her out. And she makes a good point like about how putting others before yourself all the time isn't always the best thing to do. And one of the big themes of the story is how Charlie needs to start participating in life more. But that being said... I don't think it's fair for Sam to have expected him to ask her out. Like, when exactly was he supposed to do that? Like, she was with Craig the entire time that he knew her. And she knew Charlie loved her, but she didn't act on it either. Like, he couldn't read her mind and know she wanted him to ask her out. Right? I mean... For all Charlie knew, it would have been a shitty thing to do. It would have been, like, disrespectful to her current relationship. It would have put her in an awkward position in their friendship. Not to mention all the drama with Mary Elizabeth. Like, of course he didn't ask you out, girl. Like, you should have said something. Regardless, they admit their feelings for each other. And begin to kiss. But as their kissing progresses, it triggers flashbacks of Charlie's repressed memories about his Aunt Helen. And he realizes that when he was little, Aunt Helen repeatedly molested him. So that was the missing piece of the puzzle. That is the trauma at the root of Charlie's emotional issues. So now we see 
the parallel between Sam and Charlie. They were both sexually abused as children. And the great thing about that Perks, what it does is it shows both ends of the spectrum when it comes to childhood sexual abuse survivors. And this is very a very personal subject for me because I and multiple members of my immediate family all experienced like childhood sexual trauma. So, I know this spectrum firsthand. Like most victims of molestation molestation grow up one of two ways. You either grow up with some arrested development or like an aversion to sex or you grow up to be hyper sexualized or promiscuous or you base your personal value entirely on your desirability. So we have Charlie who is very emotionally and socially stunted and then we have Sam who was promiscuous from a very young age and let herself be sexually and emotionally used by shitty people. The next morning, Sam leaves for college, and Charlie heads home, the entire time having a complete emotional breakdown over his realization about what Aunt Helen did to him. And his guilt about her death intensifies, and he starts to question if he was actually secretly glad she died. By the time he gets home, he's crying uncontrollably and begins to have a complete manic episode. And he calls Candace, who's at a party at her friend's house. And he starts to talk about Helen. And Candace can tell something is very wrong and tells her friend to call the police and send them to her house right away because she's worried what Charlie might do. And we even see Charlie staring at a knife on the counter, like intimating that he's thinking about killing or hurting himself as he remembers Helen's own scars on her wrists from a suicide attempt. And it illustrates this horrible, like, Ouroboros of misery, like this repeated cycle of abuse and mental illness. Helen was preyed upon when she was little, and it led to her mental illness, and then she became a predator and preyed on Charlie, which has affected his own mental stability. This is a whole this vicious cycle. Charlie blacks out and wakes up in the hospital and he speaks to a psychiatrist and asks her how he can stop seeing all of the pain in the world. I think one of Charlie's biggest issues is that he's an empath. One of the results of his trauma is that he is hypersensitive to the pain of others and it weighs on him heavily. And I have this same problem. Like, it's not just being empathetic. It's about the pain or sadness or anger around you just draining you and it leaves you so weak and vulnerable and miserable. But... The psychiatrist presses Charlie about the root of his issues, his abuse from Aunt Helen. And Charlie stays at the hospital for a couple months, and although it's a struggle, at least he can finally work through what happened to him and begin to heal. And after he gets out of the hospital, Sam and Patrick come to visit him. And they go to King's Restaurant, and Sam tells them about college and reassures Charlie that college is like a different world and that life only gets better from here on out. She also reveals that, thanks to her roommate, 
she has finally figured out what the tunnel song is. <laughs> I like to imagine her roommate was like, uh, duh, bitch, how do you not know this song? <laughs> so they get back in the truck and play Heroes. And this time it's Charlie who stands up in the back of the truck and flies through the tunnel. And the book and movie end with Charlie saying, and in this moment, I swear, we are infinite. So that is Perks of Being a Wallflower. And like I mentioned earlier, this movie came to me during a really low point in my life. I was in a miserable relationship. My mental illnesses were going untreated because I couldn't afford health care. And I was very suicidal. And I related so much to all of the characters. And despite some like small nitpicky things that I make fun of from, from time to time, the movie really resonated with me. And it would make me cry whenever I watched it. But like a therapeutic happy cry. And it was one of the things that finally encouraged me to get help. And my situation didn't really improve for a couple of more years after that. Like, that was just kind of like the first step. And it was a really rough time. But I'd put this movie on whenever I needed to boost my morale. And my life and my mental health are now both a million times better. But it's an ongoing struggle, you know, and I'm very thankful for the films and literature and music that help me through from day to day. So, listeners, tell me if you have any movies like this one that you really relate to that has helped you through hard times. Leave me a comment or you can email the show at wearetheweirdospodcast at gmail.com or you can hit me up on Twitter. The show's account is at weirdos underscore pod, or you can follow my personal account at mxhillary, H-I-L-A-R-Y. So thanks for listening, and until next time, this has been We Are the Weirdos, Mr. Jones.